On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Mark Garcia about the topic of ordered reality. So we cover topics like time, space, vocation, gender, and even what does Leviticus have to do with all of these things. If you want to hear more about Dr. Mark Garcia's work, go to their website at graystoneinstitute.org and you can find out more about the course that he's running on this. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up on all the normal things, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or you can email us at contact at thelondonlyceum.com, or you can check us out on our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. We're a podcast that's devoted to thinking, and we like to do that in, in a way that's creating an intellectual culture of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And today, I'm really delighted to talk with Dr. Mark Garcia about the topic of a new course he has with Greystone Theological Institute. And I think the, the official title of it is what? Ordered Reality, uh, Time, Space, and Vocation. And we're going to unpack some of these topics a little bit, as well as talk a little bit about Greystone towards the end uh, and the opportunities that you uh, fellow listeners have with this institute and all that they've got going on. Because I think if you go to their website, Dr. Garcia can tell you what it is. Um, there's a lot of really cool stuff going on there. And I think um, Cody Float, who's who's on our on our uh, part of the podcast, he, he uh, I think, did a course on Job with Dr. Kohelet. I don't know how to say his last name. So if I did it wrong, butchered it, it I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, forgive me. You know, you see all these people's last names and first names written in places and you pronounce it in your head. And then you get in this moment where you actually have to pronounce it out loud and you realize I have no idea how to actually pronounce this. So I'm probably going to look dumb, but I did it anyway. Hopefully that was close. And uh, Dr. Garcia, look, before we get jumping into the, the topic of the episode, why don't you give us a little background on yourself I imagine a lot of our listeners don't know who you are. Some of them do. Uh, some of them probably think you're awesome. Some of them just, who, who's Mark Garcia? So give us a little bit of background on that and then talk to me how you got into this topic. What made you interested in the order of reality? Hmm. Well, thank you both, Jordan and Brandon, for having me on today. It's a delight. It's an honor to join the conversation. Uh, greatly appreciate the invitation to do that. Um, just uh, to, to make sure we're clear, Jordan, it's Garcia, Mark Garcia, <laughs> Um, you have gotten it right so far. Thank you for that. And it's Don Collett. I think you're trying to, trying to figure out Dr. Don Collett. Yes, Mark Garcia. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. And yes, the order of reality is the the name of our upcoming Greystone uh, kind of full course module. It's spread out over four months, but it's a one weekend per month situation. Thursday evening, Friday evening, Saturday morning, on site and uh, online. We're looking forward to it very much. I think there's the I think this is the, the the module with the highest registration count that we've run, that we've had so far at Greystone. At least, at least the most enthusiasm and interest. Uh, so, really, really quite exciting. Um, I grew up in Southwest Dade County in Miami, Florida. Cuban father, American mother, um, and uh, went to uh, seminary at, at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And from there, went to the University of Edinburgh in Scotland for the PhD, um, did a pastoral internship, and started a fairly regular adjunct teaching um, mode of life uh, in those years that's continued all the way down to the present, about 20 years of regular adjunct teaching 
at a variety of different reform seminaries. But after a year of the internship and some teaching uh, in Orlando, went back overseas to Cambridge University, where I uh, had a position there and was the kind of theological editor for the Minutes and Papers of the Westminster Assembly Project, uh, full-time for a year, then part-time for a few years after that. And in 2007, uh, I was called to be the pastor of Emmanuel Orthodox Presbyterian Church in the Pittsburgh area, on the northwest side of Pittsburgh. And I am still pastor at Emmanuel, and I'm in my 14th year as the pastor there and have been uh, teaching at uh, Westminster and some other places just about every year uh, throughout that period as well. Um, I'm married with four children and two German shepherds, and uh, I would say we've had a hamster or two along the way, but um, <laughs> the German shepherds have lasted longer. Um, uh, my my interest in the order of reality and how I got there, I, I, it's it's an example of what I find really quite interesting more generally. It's something that we spent a good bit of time on uh, thinking about that is uh, within Greystone. That is how we come to a new understanding of something or how we change our minds on something. Uh, particularly as those new understandings or changed understandings are provoked by providential realities in a pastor's life and ministry, in a student's studies. Um, so for thoughtful Christians, pastors, other church leaders, scholars, how you come to change your mind or reach a significantly new understanding of something. In my case, it was, of all things, uh, uh, being provoked to of necessity to focus a great deal of new attention on um, domestic violence, spousal abuse, and divorce theory. So that began as as a you know a, a good reformed Christian. It began with a serious and extensive Bible study. But what that looked like before very long was uh, the realization I was not going to understand biblical divorce theory and divorce legislation unless I understood something about the woman in particular, since there's a, a, a what I call in other contexts, a, a very fruitful asymmetry in the way divorce legislation attaches to women versus men. Uh, there's a special concern to protect and preserve women as daughter, as wife, as mother, uh, and so on in, um, in, in society biblically. Um, so I wasn't going to understand divorce legislation until I understand what it was about the woman. I wasn't going to understand that in turn until I understood something more of male and female in the biblical world. I wasn't going to understand that in turn, I discovered before long, unless I understood something of how the how the scriptures uh, present a world to be inhabited, which is ordered. And uh, what we do and don't mean by that is actually quite important. But one thing led to another, in other words, until what started off as a very narrow, concrete, everyday, down-to-earth question in pastoral life uh, became, by way of several provocations, became an interest basically in, in what used to be called theory, Christian theory, the meaning of anything, the meaning of everything, the structure, if there is such a thing, the structure, the ordered structure of reality itself. That's good stuff. Before Brandon, you ask a question. I've got a. Are you a Steelers fan? I am not a Steelers okay. fan. No, I am a <laughs> Miami Dolphins fan. I was going to rub it in. And a long suffering, long suffering. You you may rub it in, and I will not feel the burn. 
Don't worry, yeah. he, he's a Jaguars yeah. fan, so he. Uh, Today's the day. <laughs> the day we're recording this, Urban. Me- well, I guess yesterday, Urban Meyer technically became. Do a coach. you really want to get into that right now? I'm not you sure. Know, about anything I took else. a shower. I feel okay. clean. It's good. <laughs> Urban Meyer's good. I, I love you. Yes, you're feeling clean. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So that's completely off topic. You go ahead, Brandon. All right. So, Dr. Garcia, before we get into a little bit more of a detailed discussion on time and space and vocation, um, maybe take this concept of ritual and and give us number one, a definition. And then also um, tell us how ritual uh, fits with the reform tradition, because I've heard you say before that the reform tradition is oftentimes identified as a thinking tradition rather than a doing tradition. So then that brings up the question, well, how well um, does the reform tradition fit with ritual? So um, if you could maybe just start with a, a basic definition for us. Yes, it's really quite uh, important and yet challenging to come up with a basic definition about ritual. Uh, notoriously difficult, actually. But um, in part, this is because ritual as a term is largely a convention handed to us by the world of anthropology. But the anthropologists have been on to something, and that is uh, there is, in fact, a discernible um, tradition across uh, recorded history of human life being constituted or involving in significant ways rhythms and patterns of life which involve the body, uh, so embodiment, and which uh, involve the body's relationship to objects and people and space and time, and which in one way or another include a concern for belonging and not belonging for uh, the concept of home and that which is not home, for purity and impurity, for holy and profane, which are not all synonyms, incidentally. Um, So what Jordan was saying just a moment ago, he took a shower and now feels clean, right? The use of water, the passage through time, the before and after, uh, the status in one case versus the status in another, those are, that's a ritual way of speaking and thinking and the, and as uh, a recent book put it, uh, but many have noted before, we are all fundamentally and invariably ritual creatures. Ritual is not a Roman Catholic thing. Uh, we all think in ritual ways. We, it's, it's, it's part of who we are as image bearers of God that we have this ritual, generally speaking, ritual relationship to the world around us, to one another, to ourselves. Um, so it's not a matter of whether we are ritual or not, but understanding in what ways we are ritual in constitution and mode of life in one way or another. Now, as far as the reform tradition is concerned, as you noted, uh, Brandon, yes, I have uh, noted before that there is um, there, there are two confusions we should be alert to here. One is that the reform tradition is a heady tradition. It's about thinking about theological ideas. It's um, almost Gnostic the way it can be described. Um, that it, to the extent that's true, it's because of a deformation, because of a problem. It shouldn't be that way. Uh, to be sure, in what's often called the cage stage Calvinist, um, <laughs> maybe that is the case. Uh, although even there, we kind of wish it were only ideas and not actions that we were dealing with, right? Not behavior. Um, but historically. And this is more important. Historically, I've suggested that the Reformed tradition 
of the Reformation traditions and of the church traditions uh, that arose out of the Reformation and, and magisterial or otherwise. The Reformed tradition is important to appreciate along generally ritual lines because the originating concern theologically that gave rise to what we call the Reformed tradition was not what more recent waves of Reformed uh, popular teaching have suggested. It was not predestination. It was not election. It was not even a doctrine of scripture concern per se. Um, It was not total depravity and, and so on. No, historically considered, the originating event and context were disputes over the Lord's Supper. And what gave rise to the Reformed tradition was a different answer to the question of the mode of Christ's real presence at the table than the one that the what we call called later on the Lutheran tradition was working with. So it was the mode of our union with Christ, Eucharistically speaking, that came historically to distinguish the Reformed from the Lutherans as the main parties of the Reformation. And it was the Christology at work in that Eucharistic theology. It was the notion of union with Christ at work in it. It was the way we understand Christ and his saving benefits, Christ and the Incarnation. It was all of those ideas at work in this very ritual reality of the Lord's table, uh, of the Supper, that actually is the theological, theologically animating uh, and originating concern of the Reformed tradition as such. To be sure, other ideas are important. But historically speaking, uh, the Reformed have as much or more reason than anyone for having a special interest in the relationship of ritual in the best sense mm-hmm. and the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. That's good stuff. So I want to jump in to this topic of ordered reality. So I think you've mentioned a couple times kind of some of the meanings for it um, alongside what Leviticus has to say uh, for this ordered reality. I think if you go on online to Greystone and you look at your course description, it it mentions Leviticus being a framework for the entire canon. And I think most people, I think some people, you know, people who are really well-read in Leviticus and things like that, will probably, they they catch what you're, you're what you're doing there. I think your average parishioner uh, and some people who aren't as steeped in the Old Testament and Leviticus are going to look at you a little funny and say, how does that uh, really become a framework for everything? And might I also mention the fact that I talked about take, taking a, a shower, you know, and feeling clean, that was all part of the plan. So don't <laughs> anyone think that was just off the cuff. So Dr. Garcia, help us. What is the ordered reality and what does Leviticus have to do with this? Yes. Uh, yes, thank you for that. Um, to keep with your uh, deliberate reference to your shower earlier, um, many, most perhaps uh, well-intentioned, uh, avowedly Bible-believing Christians, evangelicals and the like, um, would look at the coming of the incarnate one, Jesus Christ, and the blessing we have in the New Testament as a way of washing the Leviticus off of us so that we can have this far more refreshing, compassionate, liberating, uh, clean gospel. And it's an indication of just how much trouble we're in, frankly, that that might be the case for many. Um, Of all the biblical materials, um, I suspect we would not expect 
that Leviticus was the text ancient Jews used to first catechize their children. Hmm. But the fact that they did is quite relevant to the question, because Leviticus, in two different ways at least, I suggest really does function as a catechism for reality, um, and that by divine design. In one respect, we see this suggested at least by the location, canonical location of Leviticus within the Pentateuch. Leviticus is, in its material, is assumed by the early chapters of Genesis. So when Adam is described as priestly, the vocabulary of a Levitical priesthood is used for his guarding and keeping of the garden sanctuary without any specific reference to him as priest. It's assumed. Uh, the sanctuary of Eden, the Edenic sanctuary, is described in sanctuary terms pulled directly from Leviticus and Numbers. Um, the clean and unclean distinction for the animals to be uh, placed on the ark is taken for granted, not explained, but it's extensively explained in Leviticus. Leviticus is an over and over and over again assumed in Genesis, knowledge of Leviticus. So why is it Leviticus first? Well, Genesis is first for literary, canonical, theological reasons, and then Exodus. Um, but if you look at work by people such as um, Postel, and there's some other biblical scholars that have argued the case, you can see that Genesis in its beginning and end frames is framed by the beginning and end of Deuteronomy. And this framing uh, reality, where in vocabulary as well as in ideas, there's a book-ending function for Genesis and Deuteronomy becomes duplicated when you look at Exodus and Numbers. Again, they begin and end with these formulaic expressions and concerns suggesting they are bookending each other. Well, what do you have in the middle? You have Leviticus, which is like a holy of holies within the Pentateuch. By way of Leviticus, you get into the real world of the Pentateuch, much like I suggest Song of Songs functions as a Leviticus of the rest of what we call the Old Testament as a way in through the Holy of Holies into the remainder of the post-Pentateuchal Old Testament scriptural world. The Johannine literature functions similarly, I suggest, in the New Testament. Now, that's the literary argument. The theological argument is that Leviticus is preoccupied with what ancients, including ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, Israelites, would have appreciated is a description of reality, real life. It's a it's a theological, philosophical catechism of the real world, because the real world is constituted by your concerns with what belongs and doesn't and how you get there, holy, profane, pure and impure. Um, and since Leviticus becomes a kind of drumbeat for the rest of the canon, we see this at the end of Revelation particularly, um, it's, it's not terribly surprising that ancient Jews and ancient Christians at least from origin forward, saw the world contained by Leviticus. And it's that concept that Leviticus contains the world that helps us understand that Leviticus is not merely looking forward to Christ, so that the warrant of Leviticus is that Christ has some features of Leviticus that are true about him, but that we don't really know Christ unless he is clothed with Leviticus. Um, and that's a completely different way of thinking, because in Christ, the whole world is given to us, and we won't see that 
unless we see how Leviticus contains the world. And what we learn from Leviticus, with all of its preoccupation with blood and bodily fluids and um, disease and animals and death and life and so on, um, including uh, the woman's um, monthly cycle as well as time of parturition, defilement and so on, what we learn from Leviticus is that there is an order to the world. Reality is ordered, and in the order you find its purpose and meaning, and the call to faithfulness is a call to live with the grain of that order, and idolatry and rebellion are a defiance of it. Hmm. Let's maybe dig a little bit deeper on this idea of sacred time that you're going to go through in your module um, at Greystone. Maybe I what do you mean by time? What is the, what does the scriptures mean uh, by time? Because I'm sh- surely it's more than what we mean in our everyday conversation about, you know, 15 minutes has gone by or whatever else. And what is the significance of sacred time and how we understand um, the role of the Sabbath in our life mm-hmm. um, and, and other areas? Because I think this is really um, key in some of the other conversations that I've heard you um, on your Greystone Conversations podcast. This was tremendously helpful for me. So I really uh, appreciate it if you'd unpack this for us. Yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, it might be helpful to to mention that one way Leviticus is catechetically helpful here is that as scholars have noted in, in, in different ways, um, the text of Leviticus seems to reflect an interest in these three categories uh, of space, uh, vocation, and time in that order. And I've gone the time, space, vocation order because I'm persuaded that the Levitical organization, that is the book of Leviticus, organization of chapters 1 through 7, matters of sacred space, chapters 18 through 22, matters of sacred vocation, chapter 23, sacred time, and then chapters 24 through 27, the communal consequences of all three of those categories— I'm convinced that's reflected in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. As Genesis 1 is preoccupied with the concerns of sacred time and measurements of time, Genesis 2, sacred space, Genesis 3, human vocation, male and female in particular. Um, so that's where I, that's why I call it Levitical. It's not just because Leviticus teaches such things, but the very text of Leviticus seems to be organized catechetically along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to time, uh, I have two special interests, and I'm just going to be kind of brief about them um, for now. You can listen to the lectures if you like. Please join us. Um, <laughs> in one one area of, of great interest, and I think it's deeply edifying, is, um, is how Scripture measures time um, in a way that signals something we've lost by our very modern and very narrow notion of time as ticks measured on a clock. Um, That's a very artificial notion of time. It's not immoral or unhealthy because it is artificial, but there's something important in noting that it is is artificial. Um, When the Bible is concerned with time, when Scripture is concerned with time, it's concerned with time as an inherently good aspect of an overall good creation, creation which is not simply a state of affairs or a reality abstract as such an abstraction, but which is a dynamic reality ordered to a certain end of which every part 
of that creation. Um, signals is, is uh, gesturing toward that end. Time is one aspect of that. The reason there's a sun, the moon, the stars is to measure time a certain way. Well, how does scripture measure time? There are two different ways it happens. The one that I find so helpful to wrestle with uh, and, and so fruitful is captured uh, in, in a terrific book. I think it's the best book on the topic I've read, published about a year or so ago by Michael Lefebvre, and it's called Liturgy of Creation by IVP. Um, Michael Lefebvre, it is a outstanding um, treatment of how the how the Pentateuch especially measures time that deals compellingly with the criticisms of higher critics who would attack scripture's veracity because the timings don't always work on modern terms, but also uh, does far more than simply um, pre- perform an apologetical service. He notes how within the Pentateuch especially, uh, when you're looking at places like Leviticus 23 and all the sacred festivals that are outlined for us, that the way the scriptures measure time is by orienting the distance of time to creational and redemptive historical events. And the measuring of time is designed to provoke covenantal remembering of those events. And that's why a festival would be held on this day, because between that day and the previous day is this much time. And you look at a modern calendar and think, what are you doing? That doesn't add up. Well, it does if you're working with the sense of time the Pentateuch is working with, which measures time uh, in, in terms of celebration, not from a calendar, a calendrical concern, but from a, if you will, covenant historical, redemptive historical concern. This is why the sixes and the sevens and the forties of creation, of the flood, of the exodus and so on are repeatedly significant and are reflected in Israel's annual festival calendar. Um, It's not that different from what we do in this country, in the U.S., uh, when we have a day on our civic calendar to remember an event that's different from the day the event actually occurred historically. So this, we're going to remember George Washington's birthday. We're going to remember this or that thing. Even though it's a date we set aside for that purpose, we're not saying that's the date it occurred. It's a remembrance day. Well, that act of corporate communal remembrance is fundamental to how the Bible understands time. Time is subordinate to the purposes of creation and helps us to orient ourselves to that creation. When it comes to the Sabbath idea, this is where the ethical pushes its way in to this kind of measuring of time thing. Because what is the Sabbath idea for Israel? It's not just God wants one day and you have your six. It's a way of protecting the Israelites from the Egyptian myth that all of life is work. Work is life. Productivity is life. Because in a world where everything is work and productivity, you cannot have a neighbor. All you have are competitors. Everyone is a rival. But Israel is not to be like that. They are to have neighbors and love their neighbors as themselves. And by having an enforced once-a-week day which in this case is not drawn from the heavenly lights, not part of a lunar calendar, not part of a solar calendar, 
but by divine intrusion and action, you will have one out of seven that you mark this way. It makes every other Israelite a potential neighbor because you can't work on that day. You can't outproduce your your uh, your neighbor, your colleague. Um, in that way, it also figures the fullness of the blessings of redemption, but it's also a time concern. Now, alongside that's my other interest in time, which is the phenomenon of waiting. Our experience of time as it's an elastic reality, time as we experience can be stretched out or it can be contracted based on our disposition and our relationship to what we hope for. Um, so I explore that uh, dimension of time as well. But in Leviticus 23, the sacred festivals are a good gift of God to order his people in relating themselves to the creation and to the end of creation, which is the final rest and glory they are made and then redeemed for. And time is a constituent feature of a ritual world. So there's at least that much that should be said about it. Yeah, that, that's awesome. You know, I looked up this Michael Lefebvre book. I think I'm pronouncing it right. And I immediately thought, man, I'm glad you didn't make me say his last name. I would <laughs> that uh, but it looks fantastic. So I, I encourage everybody to go check that out. It's it's cheaper on IVP's website. So let's take mm. down the behemoth of Amazon because um, it is cheaper than Amazon. And his book is easier to read than his last name. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one one follow-up question I had on the time time piece before we go to space and think about what is space and what does scripture have to say about space. Um, well, I guess it really, it relates to both time and space. It seems that scripture is not trying to answer philosophical questions about the nature of time or space, or, or does it have implications? Because when I think about time, there's this debate whether time is like on this A theory or this B theory and trying to understand all the potential, I guess, philosophical theories of what time actually is and how fast it passes. Does scripture really talk to those things or is that completely irrelevant? Because it seems to me it's irrelevant for the most part, Hmm. unless I'm wrong. Well, I'm glad you asked the question that way. Um, There's an answer to your question that I want to suggest, but to get there, I have to tell you the history of philosophy, but don't worry. It'll take 10 seconds. Hegel in his infamous or famous lectures on philosophy started a tradition in the West of looking at the history of philosophy as starting with the pre-Socratics. And that's because in these lectures on philosophy that he gave, he started a tradition of treating everyone before the pre-Socratics as pre-philosophical. They are mythological, ancient Near Eastern and cuneiform cultures that don't really have an interest in philosophy because They're not using the concepts and the vocabulary of properly scientific investigation of reality, such as we start having with the pre-Socratics. So by by just categorizing it this way, he completely dismissed everything before the pre-Socratics as pre-philosophical and caught up in mythology and superstition and all of that. There is a wonderfully exciting movement of scholarship over the last generation or two that has completely upturned that that assumption with uh, further investigation into the actual cuneiform cultures he was dismissing. And what we're finding is that this is a properly philosophical world. In the best sense of the word, it's an engagement with reality and its fundamental structures, but it's just not Socratic. 
and post-Socratic. It's not of that. It's not Aristotle. It's not Plato. It's no less philosophical or sophisticated, though, but it is different. What is it that's different about the cuneiform philosophical world, pre-Socratic, which is the world of our New Testament, at least culturally speaking? What is different about it? Well, Aristotle actually, ironically, continued a motif from that pre-Socratic world, and that is that you understand what a thing is by understanding at least in part what it's for. So, And this is going to be important for Bethius as well under the vocation question. Time is, we'll be able to understand the definition of time, the meaning of time, to the extent we are also able to understand why time, what it's for. So the purpose of time belongs to its being without exhausting it. So within the biblical world, the more, the more we understand what time is for, the better we'll understand what it is. And now in philosophy, people are starting to sound that way again, which is really quite exciting. That's good stuff. Yeah, I think Thomas Nagel, I, I remember having to read him. Uh, he's got some small papers like what it's like to be a bad, I think. And with the mind and cosmos, he, he, he basically, he's an atheist trying to resurrect this idea of teleology where yeah. there's this uh, inherent, yeah. you know, I guess, foreness, uh, if that's the right way to do it. So let's talk space. Yeah. What What is space? What does scripture and Leviticus have to say about it? And I think this is the most interesting aspect. I think in the description on your website, you talk about sacraments functioning in as I guess identifying and delimiting ways of sacred space. Hmm. So I think that's really interesting. So maybe if you just want to quickly gloss over what is space and talk to that, I would love that. Hmm. The, the biblical con the concern for space or the place of space, if you will, within the biblical world uh, meets us immediately in the Edenic sanctuary of Genesis. And it's the final arena at the close of the canon in Revelation. Uh, the canon is bracketed, is framed by concerns with sacred space. Uh, in the beginning, it's an Edenic sanctuary described as a bounded reality of sacredness, of that which is holy, where by definition, everything outside of it is profane, unholy. Um, and then at the close of the canon in Revelation, uh, the wonder of the consummation is that all becomes sacred space. And you have a redefinition of sacred that goes with that, because in Levitical terms, Leviticus 10.10, arguably the most kind of uh, fundamental text in all of Holy Scripture is Leviticus 10.10, where the four categories are given to the priests as part of their commission, holy, profane, pure, and impure. Read all of reality that way, they're told. At the end of the canon, you have a sacred without a profane. Um, you have a holy with, we have a pure without an impure. Whereas all the way up to that point, the meaningfulness of any term was dependent on its opposite. Um, it's, it's, it's a counter. Um, so it's really quite uh, a wonder to have such a state of affairs at the end. Between Genesis and Revelation, the concerns for uh, that which belongs and that which does not is communicated by the bounded reality. But it begins with the human body. Uh, this is why the concerns of the body in individual terms are always, in the biblical world, ritual concerns. And its relationship to bounded space begins with the body as a kind of sanctuary space. That which come in, com comes in can defile or not. You use it in purity or impurity. Um, it's, in, it's, it's part of devotion or it's not, 
or it's withheld from devotion. Um, there are things to eat, things not to eat, things to do, things not to do with the body because the body matters in both sense of the word matters. Uh, this is true from beginning straight through the end. In fact, perhaps surprisingly, it's there in 1 Corinthians as Paul expresses his concern with a small Corinthian congregation and its viability as a church on account of those who are misusing the Eucharist, misusing the Lord's Supper. When he says, many, not just some, many of you are sick and dying because of your profaning of the table, this is drawn straight from Leviticus 22. He is still thinking in ritual terms about the effects on the body of living with the grain of or refusing the concerns of sacred space. Um, this becomes significant as well on Christological uh, and soteriological terms when we think about the incarnation as the final habitation of God with creation in the body. This is the delimited space of the God-man so that being joined to him by faith includes being joined to his space to his new creation. Being raised with him entails belonging to the new creation. There's a connection between his body and the new creation. His body determines the space that we call the new creation. Well, what does this have to do with the sacraments? Um, well, 1 Corinthians is, an, is the example I mentioned moments ago, but I agree with Ignatius of Antioch, um, and I think the Reformed tradition uh, reflects the similar, a similar concern that what makes the church the church rather than merely a collection of Christians who love the Bible and teach the Bible and sing songs and pray, but what makes the church the church, the ecclesial reality, is the table. This ritual reality of the Eucharist or the supper, the table, and communion with Christ in bread and wine, and this embodied context for uh, the presence of God with his people is what makes this not just a Bible study, uh, not just a time for singing songs and praying together, but constitutes the assembly as the sacred assembly. And that's a spatial concern where the space becomes what it is by virtue of God's special presence. And that's the concern that reaches as far back as Leviticus 10.10. There is Holy, and holy is where God determines to dwell in the special sense that he does. And there is profane, which is not a negative thing, but anything other than the sacred space is profane. And then you can be pure or impure in relationship to both the sacred and profane realms. Um, the spatial concern has so much to do with the gospel. The gospel is the gospel of Emmanuel, God with us. That's a spatial consideration. Mm -hmm not just a emotional or psychological one. Jordan, do you have any follow-ups on space? All right. Okay. Um, let's, let's transition to, to sacred vocation. Um, you say in your, your grace on course description that, that male and female are vocational realities. And I think this discussion of, of male and female is, you know, given a lot of the conversations that are going on in our culture today is, um, something we really need to, um, have a good grasp on, but I got a feeling you're going to come at this from a very uh, different angle from how most of those conversations are going. But tell us what you mean by male and female or, <laughs> or vocational realities. And and you also mentioned in the 
description, the the Boethian legacy. And so tell us what that is and then what you appreciate about that, but then also maybe what you want to push back against uh, in relation to that legacy. Mm, yes. Well, uh, if we could um, maybe get there by way of, of sticking with the Levitical path, I I would I find this remarkable. I'm still I'm still exploring this with uh, a child's excitement and curiosity. There's just so much rich, richness here. But in my understanding to date uh, of the special character, the figure of the woman, especially in Leviticus, the Levitical woman, as I refer to her, as she's found in Leviticus uh, 12 and 15. So these are the passages, uh, for some, notorious passages, but I, I think quite the opposite. The passages where uh, the woman moves from being in a state of uh, purity or impurity in relationship to her monthly menstruation cycle, on the one hand, and also in relationship to the parturition period from when she gives birth to when she's considered cultically, cultically pure. It's not a moral category. It's not a sin thing, but a cultically pure. Here's the fascinating thing about the Levitical woman. The numbers used in 12 and 15 for when this, the time of cultic impurity ends, in both cases, that number is not tied to the physiological reality. Hmm. It's not tied to when her bleeding stops. It's not tied to when um, she is fully healed, as it were. So if it's not tied to the physiological reality, that says two things. Number one, it's not about the woman having a cycle. It's not about a woman having this transition from childbirth to full functioning again, if you will. It's not about that. The problem, uh, if there's a problem at all, has nothing to do with that, but something else. So what's the, uh, what is that something else? Well, the other reality here is the numbers used for when the period of impurity, cultic impurity ends, and when she's cultically pure again, those numbers coordinate perfectly with the seven and the 40 of creation, of the flood, of the exodus, and so on. And combining this with the homologies used for the woman's body in the Pentateuch and in the prophets, where womb, her womb, and wellsprings are homologous ideas and terms used uh, back and forth throughout the Old Testament. What we find going on within the woman's body is the very story of creation and redemption. She, in these two times of life, she is moving from a state of fecundity and fruitfulness to a state of fruitlessness, a kind of temporary transitional death. She's barren for a time to when she becomes fruitful again fecund again. That is the story of creation, the fall, the flood judgment, where the world is no longer fruitful, as it's being washed with these, these uh, with, the, with the, the water of judgment, to when she becomes new creation, sprouting greenery and able to be fruitful again. In the woman's body, every single month, the story of the world is being told. The story of the gospel is being told. That's not true of a man. And it's because male and female are, are vocational even as they are biological 
differentiations. They're distinct in vocational because biological and biological because vocational terms. The woman isn't a man with different sexual organs, like the ancient philosophers philosophers sometimes thought. Uh, she's not subrational compared to the man. Uh, to the contrary, and my way of looking at this and framing it is there's a there's a liturgical ordering of male and female that is expressed by her being fashioned second rather than simultaneously with Adam. When Adam is made, it is not good for him to be alone. We don't yet have the picture of what human beings are called to be. But when he is presented to Eve, who is made from him, who is therefore of him, quite literally, but, but also theologically, when he faces her, he faces his glory. And she is his glory as she is after Adam. As he faces her, he sees what he is called to be, what his end is. And so the end of the Christian canon in Revelation describes the final state of the church as a glorified motherly bride of the Son of God. In Eve, Adam sees his glory, and that's a liturgical relationship. He inaugurates, she glorifies. He begins with the leading word, she fructifies it. She glorifies it by making it fruitful. His word falls flat unless it is glorified by her liturgical response. And I think that remains the fundamental dynamic in every sacred space concern where there is a male-female liturgical ordering of things. Now, how is that different from Bethius? Well, Bethius is the one who gave us our classic concept of what a person is. He did this in the context of early Christological controversy. And what he says about the person against the Eutychians is immensely valuable for Christological purposes. It was successful in dealing with the Eutychians. Person is an individual substance of a rational nature. Fine. The problem with his definition of person is that it gave us nothing meaningfully to distinguish person from all of created reality, and then within person, male and female. So many have complained about Bethius's definition along those lines. A person is a being among other beings. Julian Marias, who I find uh, very, very helpful and compelling in metaphysical anthropology, he explains how male and female is not limited to the sexual as being able to reproduce. But in a Spanish word that doesn't come through in English very well, sexuado, uh, the translation is usually sexuit. There's a more fundamental mode of life and being communicated by being male or female that is expressed in these sexual realities. Those sexual realities don't exhaust it. So again, a man and a woman are not the same except for having different sexual organs. They're, the difference goes all the way down. Now, what is that difference? I suggest it's vocational, where we understand the asymmetry in the biblical world between male and female, not along higher and lower lines, not along better and worse. And I think too much of the complementarity discussion tends to assume the same unhelpful philosophical infrastructure of the ancient kind of rabid patriarchal model uh, rooted in Aristotle and Plato and others, the higher, lower, rational, irrational uh, hmm. sense, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's not it's not a matter of higher or lower, certainly not better or worse, but that which is sub-eschatological and eschatological, the inaugurating, initiating, and then the glorifying response. 
Um, so it is Christ who will never be, who has purpose, determined that he will not be glorified except by way of his bride. That was the purpose of everything from the beginning. History is the providential path there. And the providential path to that glorious end, that the son would not be glorified apart from his bride, is what accounts for man and woman being made in the image of God in the way that we've been. So so that would mean... I guess I'm trying to think of implications for, you know, what happens in the fall in the garden. Adam fails in his priestly role, not not merely that he failed to protect the sacred space, but that he failed to protect Eve. And because um, you said Christ, you know, said he would not be glorified apart from his bride. So when Adam failed to protect Eve, that's really I guess I hadn't thought about it in that way before. Yeah. Um, it, it adds a different dynamic to how I've thought about his priestly role before. Yes, indeed. I have a, a few lectures on this in my theological anthropology class, but I would say exactly that. His priestly vocation, his commission in the Edenic sanctuary, is to be sure to guard sacred space. But the holy of holies, if you will, of that Edenic sanctuary was not the tree. It was his bride. And in Genesis 3, though a lot of English translations in the history of translation drop this preposition from the English translation, I don't know why that's the case. There's a fascinating study of, of how that happened. In Genesis 3, the Hebrew is clear that when the serpent tempts Eve, Adam is imha, with her. He's right there. The text is signaling, signaling to us his priestly responsibility to get in the way to protect her, to guard her. When he fails to do so, the failure is at first that he doesn't get in the way. And so the unclean thing, the serpent that is in the, in the sanctuary that needs to be driven out, is not driven out. In fact, it renders that which is holy now defiled by contact with Eve. And then he exacerbates the problem when instead of sacrificing himself for Eve or moving toward doing so, he takes the fruit from her and falls with her. So he completes his failure and his vocation, uh, first by failing to protect, but then falling with, um, rather than giving himself for his bride, which, if it sounds a lot like the gospel, is supposed to. Mm. Well, it's a lot jewel. <laughs> yeah, so one thing I, I want to make sure we touch on here is not necessarily this topic, but I guess it kind of is, is just the whole Greystone Institute and what you're doing with the course mm. with Greystone. So if you go to their website, I guess, greystoneinstitute.org, you can find all sorts of cool stuff. I mean, they've got a THM and PhD in partnership with Puritan Reform Theological Seminary. I mean, you've got all these awesome courses, hermeneutics of Christian scripture, Trinitarian theology, ancient and modern. I mean, you can just go down the list. And these people who are doing these courses, I mean, they're no slouches. Uh, clearly, they, they, they've they spent time uh, researching this. They're, I mean, they're scholars in these areas. So I think this is a fantastic opportunity. Um, so why don't you talk to us about what you're doing with these modular courses, what you get with these, and why someone should be interested in it? Because I think most of our listeners probably would jump at these opportunities. A lot of them um, don't have the access to things like this. So things like this are just tremendous benefits to them. So talk to me about that. Well, thank you very much for that. We are ex as excited as can be about how Greystone's work has been received and has in different different ways proven useful for people. 
And along the way, our network of friends uh, who are involved in courses uh, with us personally or making use of the resources has swollen, has grown uh, in a way that's really quite heartening. Um, the, the easiest and most, um, I think, straightforward way to connect with Greystone's uh, modules and resources is simply to become a Greystone member. And you can do this by going to greystoneconnect.org. We have our own website, which is greystoneinstitute.org, but all of our courses, micro courses, events, one-off lectures, post-grad seminars, all these things that we record and distribute for individual or group study and group use and of, of every conceivable duration and length and format, those are all at greystoneconnect.org. And you can go there and become a member, which means that for the price of a paperback every month, you're getting access to all uh, 100% of everything at that site as it's being added to every month with more and more course and lecture material. That's been the way most people are making use of it. And it's been exciting to see uh, as it's by design. We have hoped to provide resources at a higher theological level than than as far as we can tell anyone else is doing in, in this arena. Um, so we've aimed at something like a THM level or higher in content while providing things generally edifying for the Christian public at graystoneconnect.org. Greystone is different, deliberately different. We are, we're focused on retrieving the mentorship and local theological community context for sustained and patient theological reading and conversation. Uh, one reason why we have a Greystone mug and a Greystone wine glass, as I've told people before, is because you can't rush either of those beverages. They force <laughs> you to slow down and they make conversation possible. We do slow readings through text, slow thinking through ideas. We have a wide variety of modules and, and events and classes that are kind of all over the place when it comes to subject matter. And it's because there's a joyful um, uh, liberty at work in pursuing the truth of the Lord in every one of these directions. And we've been wonderfully blessed with scholars who are teaching some outstanding stuff and have uh, uh, not only partnered with us, but have asked to join our work to be part of the, the exciting thing going on. We have partnerships, yes, with Puritan Reform, but others as well. Um, and you don't have to be a, a, a full-time student or anything like that to use it. People use our resources for their everyday edification, and it, like they would use your podcast. Um, they, have, they go through a whole course or they go through a series. Again, you can now do it with your friends in a group study context. Um, but if you become a member at greystoneconnect.org, you get access to all of it. Uh, uh, which is again being added to quite quite regularly, um, so we're we're quite keen to build friendships and build a network of thoughtful Christians uh, who are able uh, not just to contribute to what we're doing in conversation, but form small communities where you are of readers and thinkers pursuing uh, wisdom together. And that is awesome. I, I feel like ten years ago, people couldn't have imagined that they would have opportunities like this available to them. Uh, I, I mean, I think this is just fantastic. It's better than I could ever think of myself. So, <laughs> well, well everybody, it, go check it out. It, it's been quite exciting to be a to be a part of it, and I'm I'm regularly astounded at the quality of the people who have joined the work, and the way the Lord has been using it. So it's exciting to be part of. Um, our prayer is that it will be edifying and useful. 
That's awesome. And through this conversation, I feel like I'm looking at it. I'm like, man, maybe I can make the time and I'll audit the course or something. So, Hey, come on in. The water's nice. (laughs) As long as you don't baptize my son. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Well, we'll call it a delayed baptism, but it's still the real deal. That's right. (laughs) Uh, It's okay. I'm a bad Baptist. I accept (laughs) baptism as uh, irregular yet valid. So... (laughs) You, you should you should listen to uh, a recent Greystone Conversations podcast episode, where one of our fellows, Mark Jones, uh, gives a, a brilliant and I think for many people perhaps surprising presentation on how so many Reformed Christians in the Presbyterian context have uh, early on were quite persuaded that faith and repentance are necessary for baptism even in an infant baptism context. I think there might be some interesting stuff to explore there. See what you think. Yeah, no, that's all right. We'll check it out. Yeah. I'm going to link to it in the show notes so that all you guys listening can check it out too. Uh, Dr. Garcia, before we let you go, I do want to know, do you have any online presence besides Greystone? Is there some, like, I know a lot of our guests are on Twitter. I don't know if you're if you're in that space or if it's too toxic for you, but is there somewhere people can follow you, or is it just go to Graystone and check out your stuff? Um, I uh, I have a personal uh, Facebook page. I don't know why, since I use it primarily for Graystone and uh, to see pictures of my dogs that my daughters share and things like that. Um, the 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 chief way, yes, would be to connect with GraystoneConnect.org and GraystoneInstitute.org. The two main sites. I'm also the director of the Lydia Center for Women and Families, which focuses on the gender question, women, family, domestic life. Um, and we're greatly, greatly helped by uh, our research associate, Amber Eds, uh, who's recently joined the work, and she's providing some outstanding digests of scholarship in this area that we circulate through Lydia. Um, but I, frankly, I'm really, really interested in getting to know you. So I don't mind getting emails and connecting with people personally. I think that's where a lot more should be happening is getting to know brothers and sisters in Christ and uh, working through questions together. So to the extent I have uh, time and opportunity, I rejoice in chances to exchange emails, maybe even a phone call now and then with those who have have questions. So m.garcia at graystoneinstitute.org. Yes, I'm doing that. I'm putting my email address out there. (laughs) But it's because we really do think relationships matter a great deal. Uh, Graystone is a network of friends. You don't ever have to contact us to use Graystone stuff. But always know we'd be delighted to hear from you and learn how we can serve you better. Yeah, that's awesome. Brandon, you got anything else before we close up? I don't think so. I definitely enjoyed the conversation, though. That was great. This has been awesome. So thanks a lot for taking the time to talk with us. I encourage everybody who's been listening, check out Greystone. If you're not going to do this course, at least, check it out. I think they've got a lot of resources, a lot of material uh, that is extremely helpful, beneficial uh, to both, you know, just normal local church members, as well as those who are aspiring to uh, further offices uh, within the church or something. So check it out. Uh, we'll have all of the stuff in the show notes. And as, as you guys know, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.